Okay, so to move on into the, 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 the meat of this and actually look at the modeling and how it's all set up, um, we have to define some terms so that you understand what they mean. Otherwise, everybody's going to get lost uh, with what I'm saying. And uh, this, like I said, this is, this is actually fundamental, but it's just foreign to most people. That's the biggest problem. It's really not that it's complicated material. It's just that it's, it, that it's foreign to what most people are used to hearing. And so it takes a little bit to, to kind of surround, surround it all. But believe me, you can go a lot deeper in all of these. You can go a lot deeper. Biblically, you can go a lot deeper. That's why God put Adam and Eve in the garden. Because every spiritual truth that you need to know, clearly, you can find in the garden. Find it there. In real terms. And so I mean, not in Eden terms, but in the real conditions of the world where sin has is, is done its damage you can still see the, the truth. Okay. I just tried to pick the terms I thought were the most important. There's other terms that would be uh, that I might use, and if, some, if I use it and I don't explain, you know, define it or explain it sufficiently, just holler at me and, and, uh, and say, hey, what do you mean by that? Okay, the first term is colloid, and we've already, you know, some of these we've already used. A colloid is a very tiny particle that has a charged surface that attracts cations. The reason for that is because colloids have a negative charge to them. And so positively charged cations, which you'll see as the next definition there, are attracted to that negative, that negative charge. Um, and we'll get down to the, another term that relates to it in a second. Cation, the term cation, when I use that term, it says an ion with a positive charge to it, a positive electrical charge to it. Okay, and examples of that, which we're going to talk about, are, are the, the major ones are calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. They are those are alkaline, the alkaline forming cations. Hydrogen and aluminum are acid forming cations. They have a positive charge, but they're acid forming in the soil, which we'll get into that more too in a minute. Uh, and then anion. Anion is an ion with a negative charge. And so the elements in the soil that carry a negative charge uh, don't attach to the, the colloids. They're repelled by it because they have the same charge. Now, colloids do actually have some positive exchange sites on them. It, they're very few. Uh, and so they, some anions can attach to those sites, but they're, they're very limited in their scope compared to the negative, the negative sites on it. The four, we'll go through them, but the four major cations that are alkaline forming are calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. And the two major, the two major acid forming cations are hydrogen and aluminum. Illustrations of anions are, well, nitrogen in the forms that they attach themselves or don't attach are different. Uh, in the ammonium form, nitrogen is a, is, a, is a cation, and it can attach to the colloids in the soil. So if you apply nitrogen to the soil as a, an, in an ammonium form, it'll attach to those colloids, and you won't leach, it won't leach out. If you apply it in the anion form, which is nitrate, NO3 minus, um, it has nowhere to attach, and if water comes through, 
it can be leached out and lost with the, with the groundwater. Okay, CEC. That stands for cation exchange capacity, and it is a measure of the soil's ability to hold nutrients that are cations. Whether they're alkaline-forming cations or acid-forming cations, it's just the soil's ability to hold that. Another way to look at it is how big of a bucket do you have? Some soils might have a gallon-sized bucket. As far as capacity goes, how many of those charge sites? It's just like looking at what size bucket do you have? Some soils might have a five-gallon bucket. You'll, you'll see the difference when we start looking at the difference. We talk about CECs in, in a minute a little more. Um, but it, it, in essence, is what the, the, the nutrient-holding capacity of that soil is. And if you don't know how big the bucket is, you don't know how much material to apply. Right? If I, uh, I, and I have a good illustration of this with a, with a, a client of mine. He has a CEC of, you know, the CECs can range from all the way down to one and all the way up to 100, 100 plus. The common range is generally, you know, in the 8 to 20, 25 range, but you go up north, there are some soils that have 30s, 40s, 50s, even up to 100. Uh, and then there are soils that are really light. I have a, a client in North Carolina that grows apples, and Prior to me, the reason I was brought in is because of a disaster. They were, they were told they have a CEC of three and a half. That's like, a, that's like having a cup-sized bucket. And they were told to apply two and a half tons of high-calcium limestone and four tons of gypsum. That's enough material. First of all, you should never apply more than one ton of gypsum at a time. I don't know how they came up with how much of those materials to apply, but in essence, he put enough material on for about a 100-gallon bucket. And the result was he stripped everything out of that soil, and his trees were dying. Because all the sulfur that came in in those four tons, which was 1,200 pounds of sulfur, sulfur will, can leach out cations. The, the calcium, the magnesium, the potassium, the sodium. Um, and even though it comes with calcium, it, this is a little bit beyond the scope of the class, but it, it'll actually leach calcium anyway. But um, it's, in essence, if you just remember, it's how big of the bucket do you have to fill? Okay, what is the capacity of that soil to hold those fertility elements? So it's how big of a bucket. Just remember that. Uh, don't get too hung up on the term, which can sound confusing. It's just a measure of ability measure the soil's ability to hold nutrients that are cations. Okay, so we're not talking particularly the anions right now, just the cations. Okay, base saturation percent. All that is is a percent, it's the percentage of the CEC, or the capacity of the soil, that's occupied by cations other than hydrogen and aluminum. So, if you have a five-gallon bucket, it's just saying what percent of that bucket is filled with calcium, what percent of that bucket is filled with magnesium, what percent of that bucket is filled with potassium, and what percent of that bucket is filled with um, sodium. And it actually does measure, it's kind of a, they actually do include hydrogen in, or the acid-forming cations, if your pH is below seven, it's actually part of that percentage, uh, even though they say it's not, they, they actually include it. So don't worry, we're going to go over this a little bit more. I'm just trying to define the terms here. 
So in other words, if you have a, if you have a five gallon bucket, it's just, okay, I have one gallon of that is calcium. I shouldn't do it that way. About three gallons of that would be calcium. And then uh, a gallon potassium and a half a gallon magnesium and maybe a, a pint of sodium in that. And fill in the bucket and then the rest of it would be filled up with trace metals, which we're going to talk about, and uh, hydrogen, depending on where your pH is. Okay, so, so am I losing you yet? Are you kind of, you following me okay with the bucket, bucket analogy? The terminology makes it more complicated than it really is. I should have, I, sometimes when I do this presentation, I bring my buckets with me. So you just have the visual of the buckets. And, uh, but you can see in that illustration I gave you, if you don't know how big your bucket is, how do you know how much to put on? And in this case, he spent a ton of money on that material, and he's going to spend way more money than that trying to straighten it out, just because he didn't know what size, what the capacity of his soil was. He was listening to some expert telling him what would work in generalized terms, uh, and they didn't. I just did, and I'm not picking on him. I'm just, I'm just, when I do soil tests, I'm going to point this out. I just did work for a, a, a client that I mentioned earlier, and they had soil tests done at the University of Kentucky. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to point out some of the things you should expect out of a soil test if you do it. But <clears throat> when, when those soil tests came back, I won't get into everything that was on there, but they said that the magnesium levels were very high. And therefore, you wouldn't need any, right? If they say it's very high, you would assume I don't need any. They didn't recommend any. They said it was very high. Well, I said, I can't help you with that. They don't give you any target numbers. What, what's your desired value? And you'll see, I'll show a soil test here in just a recommendation in just a second. If you don't know what your target number is and the number that you actually have, how do you know how much to apply? So when you get these low, medium, high, very low, you know, generalizations like that, I would be very leery of them. They should be able to tell you what your desired value is and what your actual value is. And so what's your deficit? or your surplus is based on, on those measures. Um, so, so this, they said that it was very high. I said, well, I can't really, I, I can't really help you with that because I don't know what their numbers mean and we're gonna talk about that in a minute I, because different labs use different analytical and interpretive methodologies and so it, it actually causes a lot of problems related to the Albrecht CEC system and I'll explain that too. Um, so he went ahead and did soil tests through Kinsey Ag, and, and they were sent to me to, to do the recommendations and everything. And it turns out he was deficient in magnesium, very deficient in magnesium. Now, how could, how could that be? One place was saying it was very high, and the other lab was saying it was deficient. Well, the problem is that the UK lab did not measure the size of the bucket. They only based it on how many pounds were there. So if you have a five-gallon bucket, is it going to take more pounds to fill it than a one-gallon bucket? And so it turns out his CEC was high, and so the, the, the amount of material he needed was way more than what he had there, but they were just looking at the pounds. They weren't looking at the percentages. And you determine the, the pounds by the percentages based on the CEC. So the bucket, the size of the bucket matters. And so if he would have followed that other advice, and again, I'm not picking on them, you just have to know what they're telling you. And, and whether that's good information or it's not good information. Um, he would have, they were planting fruit trees 
apple trees, and uh, they, they wouldn't have done very well. Just wouldn't have done very well at all because they would have been deficient, <coughs> especially because he's, he's the one on that appetite rock ore body, and so he's got excessive calcium, which suppresses magnesium even more, which we'll talk about too. Okay, pH. pH is the measure of the acidity or alkalinity of a soil based on, this is important, based on hydrogen ion concentration. So the measurement is percent, what the pH stands for is percent hydrogen, and it's got a technical definition I'm not even going to tell you because if I do, you'll run screaming from the room. So if anyone wants to look that up, you can. It just, it really, it's, a, it's a, the inverse of a logarithm of, you know, you get what I mean? I'm not going to even, uh, but basically it's just measuring, it's measuring how many hydrogen ions are in the soil. The cation hydrogen, the hydrogen ion, it's measuring how many of those are in the soil. And when you have a high level of hydrogen ions in the soil, the soil is more acidic. And when you have, when you have no hydrogen ions in the soil, then it, it's alkaline. You wind up having OH. It's a splitting of water molecule. When you split H2O into H plus and OH minus, the hydroxyl ion produces alkalinity and the hydrogen ion produces acidity. Okay, so if you have, when you get up over pH over 7, you're alkaline, you've got more hydroxyl, OH negative ions, and you don't have the hydrogen ions. Um, but that's all it's measuring. Okay, now the reason I'm saying that is because most soil tests and, and most growers will just focus on P, adjusting the pH. Okay, you know what I mean? They'll apply material, because you, you want a pH about neutral. Actually, you want it slightly acidic. And one of the interesting things is when you apply the right model, it just naturally lands in the right place. It'll naturally fall right around 6.4, depending on you know, where you're maintaining potassium, but it'll, it'll naturally fall slightly acidic. That's where the, the biology in the soil thrives in balance. That's where chemistry works the best and it's the most available. The, the mineral nutrients are the most available, but that's where it naturally lands. And it's another indicator that the model is a good model it lands there, but so anyway, um, it, it's just measuring how much hydrogen, hydrogen ions are there. Okay, so let's say, sorry, go ahead. So let's say you have a pH of six. Your soil is acidic, so you know you have, you have a, a, a large amount of hydrogen ion there, and you want to get it back to seven, or if you, you're using a good model, you'd get it back to about 6.4. Uh, but let's just say, you know, make the, the analogy easier. You want to get it back to neutral. You're gonna, what are you, you're gonna apply lime. Has anybody heard of lime, limestone? Um, to bring it back to a neutral setting. Well, let me ask you a question. First of all, there's two different kinds of lime, limestone. There's high calcium limestone and there's, and there's dolomitic limestone, which is calcium and magnesium carbonate. High calcium carbonate, or there's dolomite, which is calcium and magnesium carbonate, both in the lime, most growers don't, they're just adjusting the pH. And so they're not asking the question, you know, what kind of lime it is. They don't care. They're just adjusting the pH. And I'm going to get to the point on this in just a second. I, I actually had a fellow, Yuchi Pines, um, he, he was down there and they were working. They had a pile of lime there and I'd done the recommendations for it and they didn't know what kind of lime it was. And I, so I said, well, just call the place. Do you know where you got it from? They said, yeah, we know where we got it from. 
So I said, call them up and ask them what type of lime it is. So they did, and the guy on the other side of the line got mad at him. He said, it's lime. What difference does it make? It's just lime. <laughs> and, and, and here's the reality. When you're just adjusting the pH, who cares what kind of lime it is? But let's get back to the bucket again. When you have an increased level of hydrogen ions, what do you have less of? You have less of other cations, right? And it's, it's typically, it's not going to be aluminum because that's a, a triple plus, uh, neg triple negative, um, which a lot of blueberry growers get themselves into trouble with. But uh, it's going to be calcium, magnesium, potassium, or sodium. The alkaline forming cations have been replaced by the hydrogen ion. Now, we can't get into that whole process. I could give you the whole process of how that all happens. But when you have an acidic soil, there's more hydrogen ions there. There's more hydrogen ions there because they've, the, the other alkaline cations, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium, have been removed. So the goal is which one, what's been removed? You've got to put back what's been taken away. You don't just say, we want to... Knowing what the pH is is just telling you I'm missing nutritive cations. I'm missing nutritional cations. Which one? And how much of each one? I might be missing all three of them or four of them. I might not have enough of it. You can have, out at Eden Valley, we had pHs of 7.2 and 7.4, between 7.2 and 7.4, alkaline pHs. And we were deficient in calcium. We're not going to be liming because we're above 7. So nobody's going to be liming just to adjust the pH. But we were, we were deficient in calcium. And we're going to get to that, as, you know, why that's a problem. The recommendation was to apply calcium. Colorado State about had a fit. Because why would you put, you're going to drive your pH up, you're going to tie up nutrients, because, see, different elements are more available or less available, depending on what the pH is. Um, so they said, you're going to tie up your nutrients and everything like that. You know what happened to our pH when we applied the calcium? It went down. Now, how could that happen? How could it happen if you're applying an alkaline cation to a pH already over 7 that it goes down? It went down to 7 the first year. Calcium... I'll give you the impact that each of these cations has on pH. If calcium is 1, magnesium has 1.6 times the effect on pH. Potassium has 2.4 times the effect on pH. And sodium has 4.6 times the effect on pH. You could have high sodium soils that would hardly grow a thing, and your pH still look good. But you're going to be a mess. So it's really about what's missing out of the bucket. The pH is just telling you what are the, the cation nutrients that are missing out of that bucket. And you have to measure which ones are missing and put them back. If you keep putting on, if, like if you kept putting a dolomite lime on and bringing your pH back, back up to 7, you kept doing that, kept doing that, guess what's going to happen over time? And again, I can't you know, explain all the way, that, the, the way that it happens, but your magnesium level will go up, your soil is going to get harder, and calcium level will go down. And I can't explain all the phenomena why that does. I, I mean, I can, but it, it'll take too much time to do that. Because you're not looking at the individual nutritional elements and determining which ones are actually missing. 
You don't, you don't lime just to adjust pH. If you have a low pH or a high pH, it's because you have not enough of something or too much of something. But you've got to know which one is it. You don't want to guess at it. And that, you, this is a phenomenon that's happening all over the place. And you've got to have bigger and bigger tractors and heavier and heavier equipment because the soil is getting harder because the magnesium levels are going up. And we're going to talk about that in a second, why that happens. Actually, we'll talk about it after lunch why that happens, but you need to know what you're actually missing and resupply or replenish what's missing. Just to clarify, does it just affect pH as a liming agent? It doesn't affect pH as a, as a liming agent. It's not really a liming agent because of that. Um, well, the technical, yeah, let's just say that because I'll, I don't want to make this any, the technical definition of a lime, but um, no, it will not affect the pH, but Depending on how much calcium saturation you already have, um, you, you may or may not use gypsum because you can actually lose calcium you have even though you're putting calcium on as gypsum. If you don't, it comes down to, which I'll, I'll, I'll visit again, but if you don't have 60% saturation of calcium and you put gypsum on, you'll lose calcium. And there's reasons why that is, but... Um, there's a time and a place for the right, the right material needs to be applied based on the conditions that you have. Most people are just not doing this, and this is the reason most people are not prospering at, at what they're doing. We have institutions failing at agriculture and you know, individuals failing at it, and it's simply because the information they're, they're working with is just not, it's not good. It's not reliable, and, and so they're not they're getting there. I'm wondering, in base saturation percent, are you talking base versus acid, or is that... Right, yeah, I should explain that. That's what the term, yeah, the term base means alkaline. It's the same, it's the same thing. It means an alkaline saturation percent. They're using the term base as opposed to alkaline. This is where it gets confusing for people, and, and I wish that there was more standardized terminology that wasn't so difficult, but basically just think it's, it's acidic or it's alkaline, alkalinizing, and it's opposed to acid saturation percent. It's base or alkaline saturation percent. It's just working with the, the alkaline cations. I'm sorry, repeat the question again. Yeah. So that the effect on what? On pH? It will affect the pH, yeah. Okay. Like, say, for example, it doesn't take, it takes one-fourth or almost one-fifth of the amount of sodium to affect the pH as much as calcium because it's 4.6 times more the impact on calcium. It has to do with their, their atomic size, their charge, their um, hydration um, jacket, different stuff. We'll just stay away from that right now. But it, it, it basically they have a bigger impact on the pH because of their size and, and those other factors. So you can have a good pH and have terrible cation balance. And stuff won't grow very well. So forget the idea of just looking at pH. That's, that's what's commonly practiced, but just forget it. If you have a low pH, you're missing cations. You need to find out which ones they are. If you have a high pH, you've got too many of some cations. You've got to figure out what that is. Um, and we'll talk about how to add them, how to get rid of them.
too, as we get along here. Okay, the next one, adsorption. Ad, you see that D? You've probably heard the term absorption with a B, like something's absorbed, like water's absorbed into a sponge. Adsorption is the bonding of an ion or compound to a solid surface. In other words, it's attached to the outside of the surface of it, whatever the, the, whatever the, the solid surface is. In this case, the, the cations are adsorbed to the colloid. In other words, they're just attached to the outside. They're not absorbed into it. They're just attached to the outside. And where that becomes important is because it, it actually makes, it, it makes these nutrients insoluble, so they're not going to be leached away with water, but they're still available because of the way they're, they're attached. They're attached just to the surface of it. They're not absorbed inside of it. It's just attached to the surface. Okay? So that's, it's adsorbed with a D instead, as opposed to absorbed with a B. Okay? Is that clear as mud? Okay. Humus. Humus is the stable residue of organic matter decomposition. In other words, any organic material, plant or animal, as it, when it dies and it starts breaking down, when it gets to its stable form, it's called humus. And here is another marker, an indicator of the validity of the model. When you measure, when you do an analysis of stable humus, it matches, that, it matches Albrecht's model. He did his homework. He traveled the world. He checked every factor he could think of to, to evaluate it. Most, most of the most, fertile, the, the most fertile soils in the world also come the closest to that model. Uh, you have places that are naturally fertile, like uh, the bluegrass up in Kentucky, Lancaster Valley in Pennsylvania. It's not the San Marzano Valley, but you heard of the San Marzano tomato. It, it was made famous in uh, the, I can't remember the name of the valley there, but anyway, naturally highly fertile soil and fairly balanced. It, not completely balanced, but it was naturally high fertility. And so, how many of you have heard of the Percheron draft horse? The French Percheron? It was a beautiful animal. That part of France was another area that had naturally highly fertile soils, balanced soils. And so it bred that, that's why they, the racehorse industry is up in the bluegrass, because of that natural fertility. They were able to develop that industry. But the Percheron, you know, all the, when the wealthy people discovered them, everybody had to have one, so they'd, they'd buy them and then they'd ship them to wherever in the world. And guess what happened? The animal fell apart because they were no longer on that fertile ground anymore. They weren't feeding on fertile uh, grass and stuff. And so the, a lot of times the Percherons you see are not anything like the, per, the original Percherons that, that were bred and raised in that, in, in that area of France. You take them away from the nourishment and, and they become a different creature. Remember I said Albrecht was able to take animals and make them fertile and make them infertile. He increased the size of rabbits fourfold in just three generations. I mean, you see the pictures of these little scrawny rabbits and then the same, the same genetics, the same genetics. The epigenetics were just changed. And then the, the rabbits are this big on it, just by changing it. And he could just do it like that. He, he figured out how to, and that's how he was just testing to make sure this was, it was right. Um, okay, the last one, organic matter. Or, the, the, humus is organic matter, but organic matter is not necessarily humus. So 
but it's material, material of plant or animal origin that decays from soil to form humus. But it's anything that was once alive, any plant or animal material that was once alive that's breaking down in the soil is organic matter. Humic acid is a part of humus. Humic acid, fulvic acid, humans, you know, honestly, they don't, the, the humus is still, to a large extent, a mystery to science. It's a, it's a, it's a complex material, very stable. Um, it's not easily, it's not easily, like, it can't be used as easily as a food source, or it's not going to be weathered and broken down by, you know, rain and, and uh, temperature and stuff like that. It's really, really stable. And it, the reason, one of the reasons it's really, really stable, and it's one of the things you achieve in the soil, which we'll, we'll cover this more too, you, you get tremendous buffering in a balanced system. And so you can't control all the environmental influences, which we're going to talk about, and so I'll save some of that for, for then. You can't control all the environmental influences around you. You can't stop weed seeds from blowing into your, onto your land. You can't stop insects from flying in. Nobody's built a wall yet that I saw was high enough to exclude all that. The myth of clean soil is just that a myth. There is no such thing as clean soil anymore. There can be healthy soil. And I think I was sharing with somebody, uh, maybe it was between the meetings, when you restore the, 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 the complete and balanced fertility in the soil, you restore, you rebuild the wall. You regrow the hedge. The internal environment is protected and, and can selectively determine what comes in and what doesn't come in. And so a plant, as long as it has the aerobic zone restored to balance, it can actually put, and, and they've demonstrated this, it can actually put its roots down into toxic soil and selectively pull water or other nutrients and exclude all of those toxic heavy metals or other contaminants in that soil. That's what health and the buffering effect comes from, from a healthy soil, is the ability to exclude the things you don't want in the internal environment. Exclude things from your mind that you don't want in there. Exclude things from your body. Um, we can't get into that, because this is where I get off. I get off on one of these things, the whole nutrition thing, and the leaky gut, where you're in your gut, it plays such a huge role in your health. You're, you're the, the, the lion's share of your, your immune system's there. You have a second brain there that can actually overrule this brain. You, you have uh, a large part of your endocrine system is, is moderated there. It's not there, but it, it, it's, it's moderated there. And so if that goes haywire down there, if it's not functioning right, then you get a lot of problems as a result of that. You lose control of the internal environment. And sanitation, hygiene, and nourishment, those three, and you preserve life and you have life more abundantly. Sanitation, hygiene, and nourishment. Hygiene is, is more the internal protection, sanitation is the surroundings, and nourishment is just what it is, nourishment. Uh, now you can, well, we'll get to that later, yeah. No, it can be it can be a soil conditioner. Um, it, it, you can actually use humates, and we're going to talk about that in carbon fertility. Some of the materials and the ways that you can improve your carbon fertility, um, but it's not it's not the same as uh, actual soil conditioners. 
Okay, is, is it, is it, can I go ahead and change the slide if everybody got whatever they want to get off of there? Hygiene and nourishment. Sanitation, hygiene, and nourishment. There's only, to the best of my knowledge, there's only four kinds of interventions. The first one is the one that's predominantly used in our culture, and it's, and it's time-buying interventions. Our healthcare system is based on time-buying interventions. Our food production system is based on time-buying interventions. Uh, what I'm saying is that you're using interventions to buy you the time, uh, but they come at a price. There's usually damage done by the, the intervention itself, which is true even, either in healthcare or in um, like food production and the chemicals that are used as interventions, they come at a price. They, they do damage in, in the process. Uh, then you have cleansing interventions and nourishing interventions. Cleansing interventions, I'll use an illustration from the Bible. You remember I was sharing with somebody here. You remember the, the parable in the Bible of the woman who cast the demon out and cleaned the house all up? And then what happened? What did she not do? She didn't fill the house with nourishment. So cleansing interventions are, are valuable, but they can be a hazard if they're, they're used separate from a nourishing intervention. Nourishing interventions, in, ten, in practical terms, is the ultimate intervention. You know, it, it's what provides the health and the well-being is, is good, good nourishment, nutrition. And then the fourth intervention is, is a divine intervention which we could all use quite often, I think. <laughs> but, you know, God directly intervening in, in a person's life for their well-being. But the ones we have, the, you know, that we have some control over are the cleansing and the nourishing interventions. The condition we're in, the time-buying interventions are pretty critical, too, at this point, but they're not a solution. The same thing happens with the time-buying intervention. If you utilize the time-buying interventions, but you never correct the problem, the time-buying interventions will eventually do you in. You will, you will be done in by the time-buying interventions. So while they do buy you time and there's a value to that, particularly as, as the people's, the health condition of society has gotten so poor, um, we could all use a little extra time until <laughs> so we, can, we can get that stuff figured out. But you gotta correct the cause if you don't correct the cause. This didn't, is not very clear. I apologize for that. This is a soil recommendation form of one of mine. Uh, happens to be my father-in-law's garden. The interesting thing about this, to show you how much variability you can have in a very small area, this, if we look at this, we'll go down to, you see this is really good. In a couple of years, we got his garden really good. But his orchard, we had a really cold winter and some of his fruit trees died in his orchard. It slopes down on the one side of the garden and then on the back side it slopes down the other way and he's got raspberries back there. And they did really bad too and, and the uh, violets were taking over back on that back part. And he said, what's going on? How come it? And I said, well, I told you that, I said, whenever you have t differences in topography, Soil color, um, environmental influences, which in this case wouldn't be really a factor, you're going to have different soil chemistry. You're going to have different soil conditions. And he lost some trees that year. I says, well, the only thing I know to tell you to do is we can just take separate tests, take 
take one there. This is a third of an acre. And so I said, we'll take tests where the fruit trees are on the front slope, and we'll take tests on the raspberries on the back slope. But I said, I guarantee you the calcium and potassium are probably really low on the front end where the trees are, and that's why they're dying, and the calcium's really low on the back end because that's the violet's growing there. You can tell, people ask me, well, can you do this without a soil test? Can you know what you need to do? Uh, if you can track down the old timers that were good at observation and, and have the experience and everything, they can tell you an awful lot about what to look for for certain conditions. Now, they're not going to be as precise as a soil test would be, but they could tell you an awful lot. And uh, beyond that, uh, if you want to let me know at the end of your life when you've got about 30 or 40 or 50 years of observation and experience in, and you might start getting to the place where you can, you can do it. So yeah, there is, a way, there is another way to do it, but we're losing that heritage rapidly, and nobody's filling it up. Nobody's, gar nobody's gleaning that knowledge from those people, and it's dying with them. And uh, one of my favorite is, yeah, this is a good field because it walks easy. You ever heard any, you probably, you guys have never heard anybody say that probably. This is a good field because it walks easy. It is a true statement. You want to know why they say that? The calcium level is really good in that soil. And when the calcium flocculates the soil, it gives under your foot. It's because the calcium level is really good in that soil. And it flocculates the soil. We're going to get to that. It flocculates the soil. And so it gives. It's like a sponge under your feet. And it gives. If you were to walk on a high magnesium soil, it'd be really hard under your feet. It wouldn't give under your feet, so it wouldn't walk easy. But that's the terminology that one old farmer put on it. He said, yeah, this field walks easy. It's a good field because it walks easy, and it's because of that, that give, uh, which we're going to get to, hopefully. Okay, so I was just going to run down this to, to show you where these things show up on, on a soil recommendation. Now, all labs are different. They all run, I want to share this in case I don't share it. And I'm not saying this because labs are incompetent. They're not incompetent. They know what they're doing. And they know how they're doing it. But all labs primarily run cation exchange as their basis for analysis. They run the cation exchange model as a basis for their analysis. Okay? They all, they all use that. Some of them... Now, you'll see up here it says total exchange capacity, TEC, or sometimes it's TCEC, total cation exchange capacity. The reason for that is, is because some labs will just leave sodium out. And when you do that, it changes your exchange capacity. It changes what you think your bucket size is. And so if you have a lab and sodium, does, if all four of those should be measured. If they're not measured, the bucket size they're giving you is not right. It's not correct. And so then when you try to go to figure out what you should have there and what you do have there and you try to apply it, you're not going to hit it. You're not going to hit the mark because you're basing it on a, the wrong size bucket, wrong size capacity. Um, but, you know, uh, like on this, it's, it's just his farm and the field sample and what he's growing. And then the total exchange capacity, in this case, is 14.47. That's pretty in, in the run-of-the-mill range for soils. And I'm not going to get into what that means. Just, just look at it as it's telling you how big your bucket is. You know, if you want to do a more detailed course, that we can go into that and what that actually means. But it's, um, but it's just telling you how big your bucket is. Okay? So in this case, it's 14.47. Uh, 
So if it was relative to a one-gallon bucket and a five-gallon bucket, you'd be about in a two-and-a-half-gallon bucket spot there, somewhere around in there. Then it, you're told what the pH is. In this case, it's six-and-a-half. He is almost right on now. After two years of putting stuff on there, he wasn't that far off, and so after two years of putting stuff on there, we've got it almost right on. And uh, so his pH is 6.5. When you've got it all right on, it'll land right about 6.3, 6.4, depending on what level of potassium you're, you're maintaining. Um, and then the humus content is 2. Let me see it. Is that 2? It's so, it's so blurry, I can't. Um, and, and in this, in this analysis, it actually means humus content. The analytic that this lab does is actually measuring humus. It's not measuring organic matter. They use a different, they use a different analytical method to do it. And so sometimes you'll see these, where you're on a soil test, you see organic matter levels that are really high, but they're just measuring the organic matter. So it's a material that's breaking down. And uh, it's still not humus yet. And that's the stable part of it. What you want to know is what the stable part of it is. And then this next line has what's called a desired calcium magnesium percentage. And we're going to get into that. I'm not going to, uh, in this afternoon, in the first class. Um, and here it's 68.12. And what, what that's saying is you want 68% of your bucket, whatever size it is, you want 68% of that bucket filled with calcium. And you want 12% of that bucket filled with magnesium. And the reason for this is because, which we're going to get into too, so I won't go into detail now, calcium and magnesium determine the structure of the soil. The, the, the ratio of calcium to magnesium will determine the structuring of that soil. So whether that soil walks easy or it walks hard. And how easy it is to work, how much air can get into it and, and exchange out of it um, will be determined by that ratio. Primarily, potassium and sodium, which we'll talk about too, have some some role in that. This is a chemical phenomena. It is not a biological one. This is a big thing with the bio biology people. They'll say that the, the, the biology can help structure the soil. They cannot do this. This is an electrochemical phenomena, and we'll look at it when we in the, the next class. Uh, but it's basically making a sponge out of the soil. Uh, we'll look at it how, it, how how they actually attach to the colloids is the, how that happens, why one opens the soil up and why one tightens it up. Um, and then you just have what actual percentages you have. So in this case, it was 67 point something there. I can't remember. can't see it real well. I wish that would have come out clear. We want to be at 68. We're at 67 plus. We're almost there. Almost there. When you get that close, when you get that close, you're doing really good. Okay? You don't have to hit it right on because you know, it'll, it'll bounce a little bit to one side and then bounce back to the other side. And he was only short just a handful of pounds, and so applying it, and depending on what your crop you're growing, you might apply some and you might not. You might wait till it goes down just a little bit. He's at 12 plus, he's almost at 13, so his magnesium's a little high, but it's getting close to right on too. In a soil like this, things grow really good. They grow really good, depending on what everything else is. Um, his potassium, we wanted him at 7.5%. He's at 7. That's fantastic. If you see the soil tests I see, commercial growers, they're barely pushing 2%. They're, they're just trying to get sufficient. They're just trying to get a sufficient amount there to get a crop. Um, 
especially if you have woody, a woody crop, if you're growing trees or you're growing any kind of vining crop, which would be pole beans, vining tomatoes, actually peppers, eggplant, you know, anything like that, they take a lot of potassium and you want the potassium level on the upper end of, of, of optimum. Uh, and then, then you have sodium. And we're going to go through the, the percentages that you, you need to have, so I'm not going to do that there. But in essence, and then you'll have other bases here, which would be your trace metals, copper, iron, zinc, manganese, um, and cobalt, which is measured as well, which I recommend be measured, and we'll talk about later. Uh, that's all the, uh, the other bases. So that percentage of that bucket is filled with those, and they're measured, they're measured out of how much you actually have there, down lower. And then, of course, this is what I was talking about. Oh, well, on here, you know, they'll give you what's called an ENR value. It's just how much nitrogen, it's estimated nitrogen release. It's how much nitrogen you're going to get out of the, the humus content in the soil. Because they know they can calculate out what percentage of nitrogen is going to be released out of the, the humus levels in the soil. And so they just estimate it. So you know you're going to get that much through the growing season. And then you can uh, base what you put on depending on what you're going to try to grow. Um, then you have sulfur. And I'm not, sulfur is an anion. These are all anions here. You can see how it's, and then cations, and then your, your microbes and traces down here. Uh, I'll talk, to, talk about them as individuals. I just wanted to see what, what we do, what I'm able to do with the, the, the lab information that I get is I'm able to give you what the desired value is. How many pounds do you actually want to have based on what percentages you need? How many pounds do you, do you actually want to have? That's the desired value. And then they'll measure and find out what the value you actually have is. And the difference is whether if you have too much, a surplus, or if not enough, you have a deficit, then you know, okay, I need 400 pounds of calcium. And then you can go, for example, and then you can go and look at the materials that would be appropriate to, to get that 400 pounds and then figure out how much of that you need and apply it. And so you're shooting for a target that you know. It's, it's not like if somebody just tells you, oh, you're low. Well, how low? I mean, what does that mean? How much do I put on? If you don't know the bucket size, you, know, you don't know how much to put on. And people overshoot it and undershoot it and everything under the book. I, I see it on soil tests constantly. People just, I mean, they're all over the place. This is through Kinsey Ag Services via Perry Labs. Now, the reason I say through Kinsey Ag Services is because Perry Labs does not run all their analytics this way. Um, they run these analytics for Kinsey Ag Services based on Albrecht's actual analytical protocols and, and, and interpretive protocols. They run it that way. Why do I say that? Because two-thirds of the samples that Perry Ag Labs runs they run the way everybody else runs it. And because, and I asked him, I, said, I asked Bob Perry, I said, why do you do that? He said, I, I said, no, first I asked him, I said, are the numbers reliable? And he said, no. Now, here's the president of the lab, the guy that runs the lab. I said, are the numbers reliable? And I think we're about done here. Are they reliable? And he said, no. And I said, why do you do it then? He said, because that's what they want. Do you think there are people in life that just want to hear what they want to hear? They want you to tell them what they want, what they want you to tell them. It doesn't mean that it's, it has any value. In fact, it's, it's dangerous because it, it isn't accurate. It isn't correct. I'm going to give you some of that information later. Um, but yeah, this is the only lab left in the world that will actually run these protocols. Now, remember I said the labs are not 
incompetent. They're just running different protocols. And they're doing it because it's cheaper, they're doing it because it's faster, and they're doing it the way people want it done. It has nothing to do with its accuracy or any of that. It has to be to do with what people are familiar with. Now, you can take some of those labs, like other labs like Logan Labs out of Ohio, they're pretty close to this. But what happens is they run a CEC thing, they're using different analytics, their numbers don't correlate, but then people try to correlate them to the numbers that Dr. Albrecht developed, and they get off because they're not the same numbers. They don't mean the same thing. I'll try to elaborate on that a little bit when we start this afternoon. Um, I need to see. Um, and so this, this last thing I wanted to just make sure I got out. In this model, you're trying to achieve fertility that is insoluble but available. You're not, you're not using solution-grade materials just to make, them, make sure they're in solution and to make them available. You want to make sure you have a place for that stuff to go. Because if you don't have a place for it to go, guess where it's going to go? You know, with some exceptions, it's going to get leached out. And you're going to waste your money. It's going to be lost. And we're going to talk about some of the, the conditions that, that that happens in. You want it insoluble but available. And in this model, in the cation model, that's what happens. It's either stored on the colloids or stored in the humus, one or the other, or in living organisms, in the microbes in the soil, uh, which we'll get to with the biology. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.